0: Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for what you've been teaching us in 1 and 2 Kings. Thank you for the way you've shown us how good you truly are. Thank you for the way that these books have pointed us towards Jesus, helped us to understand our need for him. I pray that as we come to our last sermon in this series, you would continue to do this tonight. Help us as we look at this passage to grow in our faith, and be thankful for your provision of the Lord Jesus to us. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, Well, it's been just over two months now since the Afghanistan government collapsed and the Taliban officially took over control of that country. Uh, This was a moment of total desperation for many Afghan citizens, fearful for their lives and longing to be rescued And the scenes from this moment were truly distressing. You probably recall some of them. The world watched on in horror as videos emerged of Afghani citizens literally clinging to the side of a U.S. aircraft as it was taking off. See, when you're at that level of desperation, you'll do almost anything to escape or survive. Now, while many were rescued from the biggest U.S. military airlift in history... The fact is that this rescue mission ended with many others left to fend for themselves. This moment demonstrated, I think, the limitations of even the most powerful nation on earth to fully save a desperate people in genuine need. And most of us watching on wished more could have been done, more people saved. Uh, In our passage today, we see the kind of complete rescue we kind of long for. God saves an entire desperate populace from the threat of a hostile enemy encamped around their city. But this passage does more than just give us a kind of good rescue story. The good news of God's rescue here points us forward to the even greater rescue that he does for people today, a rescue from our sin, which comes through faith in Jesus Christ so what we 'll do is look at this gripping story in four parts: the desperation, the huge promise, the good news, and the note of warning it finishes on and As we work our way through it, looking at those points we 'll think about what this all means for us in light of god 's rescue today through jesus so let 's think about the first point uh, the unthinkable desperation that we see at the start of this passage uh, two weeks ago we looked at the passage immediately prior to this one, and you might remember that it finished with a scene of uh, eating and drinking in the capital city of Israel, Samaria. It was a moment of peace and joy in which Israel and the nation of Aram kind of put aside their hostilities and feasted together within the city walls. But at this point in history, everything's changed. Peace has turned to conflict, joy to desperation. The days of feasting are but a kind of dim memory for the desperate Israelites trapped inside the city walls of Samaria. The nation of Aram has laid siege and cut off all supplies to the people there. And that's what you see in the the start of our passage in chapter 6, verses 24 to 25. Follow it with me in your Bibles. Sometime later, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mobilized his entire army And marched up and laid siege to Samaria. There was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter of a cab of seed pods for five shekels. Uh, We like to sort of grumble in our society, I think, about encroaching price inflation. Spare a thought for what was going on in the walls of Samaria. The average wage for an Israelite at this time in history probably would have been in the area of about one shekel per month, which means that a stinking old donkey's head was the price of about six and a half years' worth of wages. Imagine that, your house deposit gone on a donkey's head, but you're that hungry. But the desperation doesn't stop there, does it? The picture goes kind of from the shocking to the kind of downright unthinkable. Uh, As the king of Israel is kind of walking along, assessing the chaos of his city, a woman sees him and she cries out to him in verse 26, help me, my lord the king. Uh, It's kind of like that scene in Titanic where a desperate mother begs the captain for help as the ship is sinking. He looks at her, registers the panic, and then just walks on. Uh, He knows all hope is lost at that point and that there's nothing he can do. The king of Israel is a little bit like that captain here. He thinks all hope is lost, and he's got nothing to offer. And so in verse 27, he replies, Look, if the Lord does not help you, where can I get help from? From the threshing floor? From the wine press? But Unlike the captain in the movie Titanic, the king here is at least willing to ask what the matter is. Uh, in verse 28... And what comes next, her reply to that question is possibly some of the most bone-chilling words of the entire Bible. She answered, this woman said to me, give up your son so that we may eat him today, and tomorrow we'll eat my son. So we cooked my son and we ate him. The next day I said to her, give up your son so that we may eat him. But she has hidden him. Now, it's kind of an unimaginably horrific picture of human desperation, isn't it? What should we do with such a confronting picture? What would you do with it if you came across it in your daily Bible reading? When we come to confronting scenes like this one, I think it's helpful not simply just to react emotionally to what is presented, though that's going to be normal, but actually to reflect on why it's being presented. It's normal to react, but we also need to reflect. It's a bit like if you were driving along and in the distance you saw this on a billboard, a kind of gory eye. Now, reaction without reflection will lead you to simply kind of screw up your face and and look away as you drive past because it's just kind of gross. But reaction with reflection leads you to kind of investigate what's going on there, to read the subtext and actually realize it's a good warning, although graphic, against the dangers of blindness that go with smoking. So if we only react but don't reflect, we actually may miss a helpful message that God has for us. And we also might come to some incorrect conclusions, which seems to actually happen with the king as he kind of surveys what's happening before him. You see, he simply reacts. He reacts with anger, believing this to be nothing more than a terrible act of divine cruelty by a God who just doesn't care. That's why his first response is actually to rush with his officer to Elisha's house and to cut God out of the picture by really cutting off the head of Elisha, his prophet. And so he spits out the words in verse 37. This is what he says. This disaster is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Reaction, but not necessarily enough reflection. But you see, if we reflect on this graphic scene, we'll actually start to consider the fact that, well, actually the narrator of this passage could have chosen all sorts of atrocities to speak about that I'm sure were happening in the walls of this famine-ridden city. But he decides to focus his attention kind of squarely on this one. Why? Well, I think he does this to let us know that what is happening isn't random. And nor is it the result of a vindictive or uncaring God, as the king thought. He speaks of this scene about the mothers to let us know that this is an act of just judgment on Israel's sin. A judgment that God had actually lovingly warned would come to pass if they rejected him, if they worshipped other idols, if they gave themselves to committing all sorts of evil and oppression. You see, this particular image of a siege, of a famine, of cannibalism, that was laid out as a genuinely real threat in Deuteronomy 28. It says in that passage, Because of the suffering of your enemy, the enemy will inflict on you during the siege. You will eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of the sons and daughters of the Lord your God has given you. And the extended words of that section in Deuteronomy 28 really mirror almost exactly the graphic situation we see in our passage tonight. we was seen over the course of one and two kings how Israel, under the leadership of her kings, had repeatedly rebelled against God, ignoring his law. But now they were starting to feel the consequences of that You see, like the eyeball on the billboard, these confronting verses actually give us an uncomfortable message we need to hear. They tell us that we can't keep rejecting God, ignoring him, and think everything is going to be okay. They tell us that sin leaves people impoverished, desperate, and helpless. But the real impoverishment of sin is actually not just material but spiritual. See, Israel was desperate, spiritually desperate, long before they were materially desperate in this famine because they had cut themselves off from the true and living God who gives life and blessing and eternal hope. And that spiritual desperation, which actually lies at the heart of this scene, is actually as true for Israel as it is uh, true for us as it was for Israel. Because like Israel, we too all have hearts that are prone to rejecting God, to mistreating others, to living life according to our own moral code, which so often is weighted in favor of us at the expense of others. This is why God speaks of humanity generally in Ephesians chapter 2 as being dead in trespasses and sins a people who stand condemned and deserve his wrath. So you can't get a more desperate description of humanity than being dead, spiritually dead in sin. You don't have to be eating a donkey's head to be declared desperate in God's eyes. Sin makes you desperate. This is why Jesus refers to us as the sick who need a doctor. That is, people who need him to heal us by removing our sin as a surgeon removes a cancerous tumour. I often say in our Christianity Explored courses that before you can fully appreciate and understand the good news of Christianity and God's salvation, you have to first understand the bad news of sin. The more you get how spiritually desperate you are, the more you will get how much you need Jesus and why it's so good to have him. But thankfully, God doesn't leave desperate people without hope. He comes to them with a huge promise, which is our second point. Remember, these people are in total desperation, surrounded by an enemy force, literally starving to death people spending their life savings on a donkey's head and resorting to unthinkable means for survival. But then comes the word of the Lord, and everything changes. This passage suddenly moves from complete desperation to utter hope. See, look at verse 1 of chapter 7. Elisha replied, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow, a seer of the finest flour will sell for a shekel and two seers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. He's saying, you might have nothing now, but you will have all you need by tomorrow. See, this promise is huge. It's unthinkably good. But what is the first response we see? Well, it's unbelief, isn't it? The king of Israel's officer who's at Elisha's door there, he just refuses to believe and he lets everyone know it. Verse 2, the officer on whose arm the king was leaning said to the man of God, look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of heaven, could this happen? In this guy's mind, there's just some things not even God can do. You'll see it with your own eyes, answered Elisha, but you won't eat any of it. Now, we're going to come back to this guy's unbelief soon, but right now, I actually just want to pause to reflect a little on what this huge promise says about God. See, this promise to the desperate people of Israel says that God is incredibly gracious and compassionate. Remember, the people uh, God promises to save here are the same people who have repeatedly sinned and rebelled against him. What they deserve is actually God's justice for their sin, but what God promises them is mercy, salvation. It's a bit like this. Imagine your real estate agent came over for a routine inspection. We had one of these uh, this week just gone. Uh, you'd forgotten that re- uh, routine inspection. And so what she finds is an absolute site. I mean, the yard's a mess. But inside the house is even worse. Kitchen's filthy, the floorboards are scratched. The furniture the landlord had actually generously left you to use is actually partially broken, scratched, stained. And so as the agent leaves, she lets you know in no uncertain terms that you've completely broken the lease agreement, that the owner's going to be outraged, and that you should expect an eviction notice by tomorrow. The next morning, you wake up feeling kind of ashamed and very desperate worried about where you're going to go next. And the phone rings, and it's the landlord. And you panic, and you're bracing yourself for a string of threats and swear words, thinking he's bypassed the agent, what's he going to say? But instead he speaks with a calm and kind voice to you. He says, look, I've heard about what you've done to my property, and I'm ringing to tell you that you don't have to worry. You're welcome to stay in my place, where you are. I'll send some guys around to help you clean up the property and I'll cover the cost of some new furniture to replace what has been wrecked. I've told the agent all about this. You don't have to worry about her. It's going to be okay. Can you imagine a landlord who would be so gracious, so compassionate, so slow to anger and abounding in love? wouldn't that be a landlord worth knowing? That is the kind of grace that characterizes the God of this passage, the God of us. See, the people of Israel had trashed the covenant relationship they were in with God. God had every right to simply wipe them out once and for all by that Aramean army that circled them. But instead, he looks upon their desperation with grace and compassion and promises them rescue. They can keep living there, and he'll cover the cost of what they need. See, God does not treat you like an ordinary landlord who would, who, you know might cast you aside the minute that you tick him off. God is exceptional. He's exceedingly gracious towards sinners, towards you. And God shows you this in Jesus, in sending his own son who willingly dies in our place. Jesus covers the cost of our debt of sin by taking the punishment we deserve on himself through his death on the cross. Paul speaks about that kind of crazy, huge love of God in Romans chapter 5, where he says, you see, at just the right time, and we're still powerless, that is kind of desperate in our sin, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, some might, might possibly dare to die. Oh, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we we're still sinners, inconsiderate and offensive tenants, Christ died for us. The huge promise we see in this passage does not just speak of the hope of salvation, it speaks about the God of salvation. And you can have a relationship with that God through faith in Jesus. But we move in this story from the huge promise now to the fulfillment of that huge promise, to the good news of that fulfillment. God acts in power to save his desperate people. But did you notice uh, that initially, the people of Samaria don't even know that they've been saved? It's only when four guys with leprosy make the decision to take their chances with the enemy that that good news is first realized. So you look at verses 3 to 4. Now, there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. They said to each other, why stay here till we die? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine's there, and we'll die. If we stay here, we'll die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, then we die. There's a lot of dying going on in their plan. But they, see, these guys have been forced outside of the city gates due to their contagious skin condition. But now is the time to kind of reevaluate their plans. And you can kind of follow their logic. Stay here, dead. Go inside the city, dead. Surrender to the enemy, likely dead, but maybe possibly live. And so they go with the best of Three bad options, really. Verse five. At dusk, they got up and went to the city of the went to the camp of the Arameans. And when they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there, for the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army. So they said to one another, "Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us." So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. God had caused the Arameans to flee, leaving everything behind. And we're talking, tents, food and drink, livestock, silver, gold, all sorts of goodies. Now, can you imagine the experience of those four guys as they head into that enemy camp? See, they're walking in thinking that they're about to head into a world of terror and what they find is a complete world of treasure. What would you do in their position? I think if we're honest, many of us, I think, would do something similar to these guys, which verse 8 tells us. They kind of rush in to the first empty tent they see and they just start raiding the fridge, basically, eating and drinking all they can. And can you imagine how good that would be after weeks of living on basically nothing? Oh, and then they turn their attention to all the treasure of the camp. And it basically becomes becomes like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. They don't know which treat to grab next. It says, then they took the silver and the gold and the clothes and they went off and hid them. And they returned and entered another tent and took some of the things from it and hid them also. From tent to tent they go, grabbing the goodies and hiding them away for themselves. Then comes conscience time. As they look at themselves, kind of rushing about, arms full of treasure, they realise something's off about all this. Is it really right to be feasting, hoarding everything for ourselves while thousands of people over there, behind those city walls, are kind of literally eating each other to survive? Then they said to each other, What we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news and we're keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. See, they're thinking, How can we keep this good news to ourselves while our brothers and sisters are perishing? See, they rightly sense. But a failure to pass on this good news would be lovelessness. It would make them morally guilty before a God that calls us to love our neighbour. And so they go and they tell. They tell the gatekeeper, the gatekeeper shouts it out to the city, verse 10. And then finally, even Israel's king hears the news. And although he doesn't believe it at first, he thinks the whole thing's an ambush in the making. His scouts soon confirmed the truth of the news, verses 13 to 15. And what happens next? Verse 16 tells us the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. So a seer of finest flour sold for a shekel, and two seers of barley sold for a shekel, as the Lord had said. This was a day of good news. God's promise to bring about a remarkable salvation had become a reality. It's an absolutely glorious scene, I think. I loved reading it when I came to this passage to do some prep on it. But the truth is that we are living in an even greater day of good news. Because our good news says that through Jesus' death and resurrection, God has actually caused the greatest enemy, our greatest enemy, of sin and death to flee. We are now forgiven and accepted by God, and will not stand and face his judgment in hell. Our good news says that sinners can now enjoy every spiritual blessing, Ephesians 1. God gives us his spirit. He will raise us up to everlasting life at the last day to be with him forever. This passage reminds us of the better news we have in Jesus, but it also challenges us. Are we keeping that good news to ourselves when there is a world out there perishing? See, there are 62,000 people who live in Bandura alone, all of them unthinkably desperate in God's eyes. I wonder how many of them have actually heard the good news we treasure so much as Christians. I don't know about you, but this scene in this passage makes me ask the question, am I as cut to the heart as these four lepers were in that moment? Uh, We are living in a fractured society in which passions are raging about so many different things, and I get that. I feel those passions too, but do we get passionate about our fellow citizens desperate in their sin? Or is that kind of getting sidelined in the moment? I'm part of a WhatsApp chat with other ministers. And for the past number of months, uh, this particular chat, I've noticed has just been filled with passionate talk of all things COVID and restrictions. But a couple of days ago, one of the ministers posted on the chat asking for prayer for a local woman in his town uh, who would ask to learn more about God's ex- existence and faith in Jesus, to which another minister posted Nice, a nice reminder about what we're here for, praying. And it was a good reminder to all of us. Let's not let the good news of Jesus be drowned out by the bad news of COVID within our city. Let's not let that happen to us. See, the way of God's salvation comes to people The way God's salvation comes to people today is by hearing about Jesus through our words. Paul writes this in Romans 10. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they're sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. See, the four guys in our passage, they may have had leprosy but at least they had beautiful feet, because they brought good news, to the people of Samaria. What might it look like for you this week to be someone who also has beautiful feet as you share the good news of Jesus? You know, maybe it happens as you speak about your weekend with work colleagues, and instead of quickly sort of passing over the live stream church part of your weekend, you actually pause there and actually give one highlight about something you learnt from about Jesus from the service. Or maybe it happens as you speak about your confidence in Jesus with a neighbour worried about COVID. Now, we're not required to be Bible scholars when it comes to proclaiming the good news of Jesus. We're just called to pass on what we have come to know for ourselves, that forgiveness and life come through trusting Jesus. To quote D.T. Niles, evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. It was like that literally for the lepers. It's like that for us too. But finally, this passage leaves us on a note of warning. Now, you might have noticed, but this day of salvation isn't actually good news for everyone in this picture. See, for the officer who refused to believe God, his power to save, this was actually a day of reckoning where his sin catches up with him. And you see it there in verses 17 to 20. Now, the king had put the officer on whose arm he leaned in charge of the gate, and the people trampled him in the gateway, and he died. Just as the man of God had foretold when the king came down to his house, it happened as the man of God had said to him, "'About this time tomorrow, a seer of finest flour will sell for a shekel, and two seers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria.'" The officer had said to the man of God, look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of heaven, could this happen? The man of God had replied, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat any of it. And that is exactly what happened to him. The people trampled him in the gateway, and he died. Did you notice the repetition through that? And our narrator makes it crystal clear that the officer's trampling here isn't some random act, but a divine act of judgment. Verse 17, just as the man had foretold. Verse 18, as the man of God had said. Verse 20, and this is exactly what happened to him. Do you hear the final note of warning in this passage? Just as God's word of salvation will not fail, so his word of judgment against those who ignore him and refuse to believe in him will not fail. See, the way this passage ends, for the people of Samaria and for the officer, are worlds apart. The people of Samaria get treasure. He gets trampled. This is a loving warning not to be on the wrong side of God's faithful word. The way you respond to the gracious promise of God and his salvation in Jesus will mean the difference between getting eternal the, the eternal treasure of God's kingdom and life with him or the eternal trampling under God's judgment. Don't be like this officer who heard about God's promise to save and just simply rejected it. Believe God when he tells you that you are a desperate sinner but can be saved through faith in Jesus Now, you may have more questions about that. That's okay. Uh, If you're happy to, I'd love to share more about you uh, of the good news of Jesus. Just shoot me a message through our website. But if you're already a Christian, then I think this final note still acts as a loving warning to you to keep on trusting in God's promise to save you through Jesus and not to doubt that. Uh, The author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 3, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. What is God's provision against sin's deceitfulness, against unbelief? Interestingly, it's your brothers and sisters, according to verse 13 there. It's the encouragement that, to keep trusting in Jesus that comes from one another. And this is a good reminder as we think ahead to next week and the reopening of this building. Online church has been a good provision to us in these times, but gathering physically provides such a richer opportunity to encourage one another in our faith. So if you can, make the effort to come and encourage one another as of next week and the weeks beyond. For most of you, that will look like returning to our regular 5pm service. For some of you, that will mean attending the 3pm service for a time. It's been a long time since we have been able to encourage each other in person. And Some of you I know have been left feeling pretty emotionally and spiritually depleted because of that. We actually need each other right now as we open up we need to be encouraged by holding, encouraged to keep holding fast to the one who will save us completely from this world of sin, suffering, and death. Our last week, we saw much of Melbourne celebrate Freedom Day, the day in which lockdown entered. Desperately lonely people were able to see loved ones, shaggy-haired men able to get a haircut. And as of Friday, shop doors flung open once again. Now, in many ways, all these things are good. They're worth getting excited about at some level, but we have been shown here in this passage that we have such a greater reason as Malburnians who are Christian to celebrate. We have a greater freedom freedom from sin and death, the freedom to enjoy God and live with Him forever. See, as we emerge out of lockdown, Let's not get distracted by a lesser idea of freedom. Let's celebrate the good news that God has saved us, desperate sinners, through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are indeed our gracious Father. Thank you for how you've shown us that tonight. Thank you. uh, Help us to keep relying on your gracious promise. Jesus, to save us from our desperate state of sin. Help us to trust in him, speak of him, and celebrate him. In Jesus' name, amen.